Thank you, Michelle. And um, I just want to encourage you. Yeah, that's our, our way of encouraging you to take that next step into the life of the church and uh, find a place to serve in this Christmas season and beyond. Just so thankful for Michelle, who's been leading our deacons and all the work she did there. So I know y'all don't get to see it, but she's put a lot of effort into that. So thank you so much, Michelle, for all that you've done for us and uh, continue to do. So um, with that, I'm going to invite you to find Isaiah chapter 40 this morning. I'm going to pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for the way that you are meeting us here through this worship service, and I pray that as we reflect now on this passage from Isaiah, that you would help us to prepare our hearts for this Christmas season, Lord, as uh, you came into the world in flesh and blood to show us how to live and be in the world, to give us um, the, the rescuing life preservers of hope, and joy, and peace, and love. Lord, may they not just be cliche words, but may they be uh, the true essence of your presence in us to lead and to guide, to strengthen, and to fortify us as we walk this life together. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, we're going to do the first Five verses here. Says this Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we've been going through and looking at different sections of the Old Testament in order to prepare for Christmas, and we started looking at God and how God saved the people, uh, the Hebrew people, in the book of Exodus, and then last week we looked in the, the time of kings at how King David was a proto-Christ in how he extended this amazing grace to Mephibosheth. And so today we're going to a time of exile. We're going to look at a season in the life of the pe- um, God's people that was a, a challenging time for them as they were in exile. And help me to do that. I want to show you something about how the Bible's hyperlinked how there's certain stories within the Bible that show up again in other times in uh, the Bible. And so I'm going to show you just for a second how what happened to the first humans also happened to the people of God. So I need to show you a picture that's going to help me. i got a couple pictures here. This is a picture, just a rendering, icon rendering of a time 
uh, for Adam and Eve when they were kicked out of the garden. You remember the story that they ate of the knowledge of the tree of good, of, of good and evil, and in so doing, the sin entered into the world, and one of the consequences of sin was that then, what, they were sent out of the garden, east of Eden. This is the first picture of exile that we get in scripture. Do you remember what happens right after that in the book of Genesis? Is that not soon too far after, then we get the Tower of Babel, okay, where there's, uh, humanity has lost its way, they're trying to build a tower to heaven, and chaos is ruling and reigning, right, as then different languages come into the world. So we see here an exile because of sin and then a movement into this uh, Babylon. Well, as we go throughout scripture, we see that um, post the deliverance of the people of God, as we explore post the kings uh, that came and, and, and played their uh, moment in the leadership of the Hebrew people, that there's also trouble in the promised land, right? That as, as we read deeper into the Old Testament, that the people of God made it to the promised land, but they can't live up to the covenant that they made with God about who they were going to be in the promised land. And so unfortunately, it, they become vulnerable because of their idolatry, and uh, because of foreign nations that are able to come in and attack them and take them away to captivity, that they're actually taken into exile. And we have a picture of that, right? So the same idea, right? This, this picturesque promised land has now unfortunately been lost. This homeland has now been lost and the people of God are sent out and they are unfortunately, no longer where they belong, where they truly, where their hearts want to be. The most famous scripture that many of you will be familiar with as it pertains to this concept of exile, the emotional feeling of exile, is perhaps best captured in Psalm 137. It says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion, Right, that would be their homeland, Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for our captors asked us for songs. I find that to be fascinating, right, that uh, the people that are in captivity were asked for songs by their oppressors, right? In some ways that, that, that trouble, that difficulty produces beautiful art and music. And so they were people of soul, even though they were they were not where they wanted to be. They weren't in their homeland. They, they would sing these songs and share these songs, and they were so beautiful that even their oppressors wanted to hear them. It says they demanded, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But here's the response. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. Right, that's a musician's right hand. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So there's this, you can just feel this essence of this desire for a longing for to be back home. 
But something interesting happens in the Old Testament even beyond this. Actually, as we look at Isaiah, it's really split up into a pre-exilic time where the prophet Isaiah is speaking of what will come, these conquering foreign nations, and then a post-exilic time when the people of God have returned back, and yet there's something inside of them that's still not home. That even though they are in their homeland, in Jerusalem again, they still feel this disconnect. They still feel an exile. Like they're not really home, even though they are home. And so this is what Isaiah is speaking into when he says these words, the people need a highway, right? He's describing that when he, in his uh, mind's eye, is thinking about this feeling of exile, he's imagining a wilderness wasteland, perhaps hearkening back to those uh, years when the Hebrew people were just wandering in the wilderness, and you know what that would be like to feel really lost, right? And to be wandering around, wondering where home is, not sure when you're going to make it or when you're going to get there. I can remember one time when I was dating Katie, we were on a hike, and we got pretty high up into our hike, and the sun was setting And all of a sudden, we forgot where we were. We weren't sure exactly the way off of the mountain, and we started going down some sideways paths. And that feeling is really what's going on here, this idea of, okay, I could be taking steps that are actually leading me further from home, or I could be taking steps that are taking me to where I want to be, and I'm not sure. I'm confused. I don't know. Am I going the right way or am I going the wrong way? And the people of God had been experiencing that for a very long time, the sense by which they had been trying, but they were lost. Trying, but they were lost. And they kept trying and trying and trying and trying again, and they just couldn't figure it out. They couldn't find their way in the world. And so Isaiah comes with this prophetic word that says there's a highway that's coming. Now, this is a, this is an image of a beautiful highway, but I think just to connect me to the emotional uh, reality of this, last yesterday, uh, Katie and I were uh, in the traffic on the 405, right? And, <laughs> and you know what that's like, right? You, you sit there and you are so close physically to your destination, but you really do not know how long it's going to take you to get through all that traffic. You're looking at your GPS and it you know, could get longer and longer and longer as you wait. All it takes is one accident, doesn't it? And you're just stuck there and frustrated Now imagine if somebody came while you were stuck on the 405 freeway and said, there's a new highway coming, right? That would get you excited inside like, oh my goodness, please, anything to fix this problem. We have done this to ourselves, haven't we? There are too many people here. There is not enough highways. And yet there's a sense by which if we know that if we want to make more room on the highway, that it takes construction, 
things get narrower and more difficult, and it's frustrating all this time that it takes to build the bigger highway. That's kind of like Advent. Right now, we're in construction. We're, we're doing the work. We're trying to make a bigger highway. We're trying to, to get ready for this new way that's coming into the world that Isaiah says is the thing that will rescue the people of God who've been wandering, who've been in exile, who've been cast out east of Eden, longing for home, hoping for home, but not contented yet. This is... Uh, the voice of God that you know John the Baptist, as we turn the pages to our New Testament, summons in order to speak as he goes out and deliver the good news that Jesus is coming into the world. He chooses this text from Isaiah. He says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. So he went around everywhere where Jesus was going to come. And he would declare this message. Get ready, get ready, prepare the way. A path is coming in the wilderness. And then when Jesus came on the scene, there's a conversation that's picked up about how this is fulfilled. In John chapter 14, Jesus says these words to his disciples. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, also believe in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So Jesus says, you know the way. But this is what Thomas says in response to that. Lord, we don't know where you're going. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas, for raising our questions that we don't want to say, right? So how can we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is not just a highway, right? He is a person. He is the way. He is the one who makes the way. His full embodied example, coming to earth, taking on flesh and blood, teaching, healing, caring, for people, showing the way of God in every interaction that he had, a transformative way of God with each and every exchange that he had, person to person, and then eventually going to the cross, dying, suffering, so that we could have forgiveness of our sins fully and completely, all of this wandering and wandering and wandering and be being lost in exile, Jesus came to declare, here is the way home by his death and resurrection. To say, here's the new way to walk. Here is the way in which to walk in the light of God. So how does this apply to us in our everyday life here at the church? 
Well, one way it applies, I think, has something to do with a contribution that a guy named Dallas Willard made to the church pretty recently. He points out in a book uh, that he wrote called The Great Omission that the word disciple occurs 269 times in the Bible, while the word Christian only comes up about three times. And this is his quote. He says, Much of evangelism today is rooted in a misunderstanding of salvation. People have been told they are Christians because they have confessed and they believe that Jesus died for their sins, but the total package is presented in such a way that it leaves the general life untouched. Right? And so Willard made his mission to collapse this idea of salvation into our everyday life, 24-7. We haven't talked about that way in which God saves us, right? This way in which God desires to save us every breath, every second, every day of our life, save every choice, save every relationship, that Jesus came into the world and by his example, his saving presence collapses us into one big jumble of salvation. All of it is saved. Jesus wants to save every last part of us. He doesn't want to us to compartmentalize this salvation and that salvation. He just says, no, the whole thing will be saved. Every last bit will be saved. It's such good news that the way is a person because we can have relationship with the way. We can have transformative relationship with the way. A theologian named Martin Buber wrote a really great book um, called I Thou. I think it's a really important book for anybody who wants to grow in their relationship with God to understand because it points out a tendency that we all have, which is to treat each other and to treat God as I, it. Some ways, Santa Claus is like I, it relationship, right? We teach our kids <laughs> this way of being when we say, if you're good, you will get presents. If you are bad, you will not get presents, right? That there's a transactional relationship I, it, if I do the right thing, if I say the right thing, if I do the right religious work, then I will get what's coming to me from God. That's an I, it relationship. Much of religion has fallen into this trap of being I, it. But I, thou is different. I, thou talks about how there, Buber says that there's an exchange between two people in relationship that gets beyond just the transaction and into something un unnameable and unspeakable that happens when we're together. All those little intricacies, all those little details of what it means to be in relationship with the people we love, that there's actually something that happens in relationship that not one person can have by themselves that actually becomes the relational element where it's like I give you something and you give me something in return and there's a sacred exchange that builds in relationship and this I-thou relationship is what's being offered to us through Jesus. Jesus' way is a person. 
the way through the wilderness, the way through our wandering is to be in a sacred exchange, sacred loving exchange with Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who goes before us. I told you that over the summer my son read the Chronicles of Narnia books and every so often he would point out to me, Dad, this is what you got to use in your sermon. Like this story, this is the one that you got to use. This is one of the ones that he picked out from Prince Caspian. And as you know, Aslan uh, represents God in the story. This is a time in Narnia where the kids have grown up. You remember those kids that went to the wardrobe and they had their first experience in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's the most popular book, but now we're reading Chris, Prince Caspian and the kids have gotten older, and in this story it particularly, particularly features Lucy, and Lucy's gotten to Narnia. She's gotten older. Time has passed, and so she's anticipating what will it be like to see Aslan again now that I'm older? What will the experience of it be like to see Aslan since time has passed? This is their conversation as she encounters him and has a moment of embrace of his mane and they, they are fully in warmth of conversation. Welcome, child, he said to her. This is Aslan. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you are older, little one, he answered me. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is such a beautiful idea because it inverses something about our childhood. I don't know if you've had this experience where, you know, when you're a kid, everything is big. And then you, maybe you go back to those places you were when you were a kid, and they are like, oh, they're smaller than I remember them to be. But Lewis here flips that on its head and actually says, no, that God doesn't get bigger. God is eternal, always the same. And Jesus is the eternal son of God. So he's not in the process of becoming bigger or greater. He's eternally perfect. However, every year that we walk down life's highway, the way of Jesus. Every year we do that. There's a sense by which we see God as bigger. Our eyes esteem him more fully. He's magnified before us. He's even more wonderful, even more powerful, even more worthy of our praise, ever more glorious, ever more able and as we recognize the bigness of God in our hearts, we can see that he wants nothing more than for us to find our way this Christmas. So that's my prayer, that you would find this highway, that you would see it's the way to freedom, hope, and eternity, that you would walk it in joy, knowing that it is the way to home. Will you pray with me?
Jesus, wherever we have lost our way, um, wherever we find our hearts like gridlock traffic, frustrated and not knowing exactly when we will get to where we want to go, that, that you are there as a highway through the wilderness, reminding us that no matter where we find ourselves, whether in physical exile or just in exile in our heart, even though we're at home, that we belong to you and that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we can follow you to find that there is so much for us to do and to be together in our time here on earth. We look forward to that day, Lord, as you promised that there are many rooms, many rooms available, Lord. And we're thankful that our name is on one of those rooms, Lord Jesus. As you walk us home, you walk us home in this short time we have together. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.